0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a strawberry margarita. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a mojito, and this week
1: we're discussing the murder of Meredith Kircher and the wrongful conviction of Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox was born on July 9th, 1987 in Seattle, Washington. She was the oldest of three daughters, and her parents divorced when she was just 10 years old. Amanda went on to study linguistics at the University of Washington and made it onto the dean's list. She also worked as a barista and enjoyed hiking in the Cascade Mountains of Washington. One of her former roommates described Amanda as, quote, generous, kind, genuine, optimistic, bubbly, pretty much all the good words that you can find in the dictionary, she was, end quote. Amanda wanted to study abroad in Italy, though her stepfather did not think she was mature enough for it friends also called her naive and on occasion too trusting. She eventually began her junior year studies abroad at the University for Foreigners in Perugia, Italy in 2007. More than a quarter of the city's population is university students, many of whom are studying abroad. She lived in a four-bedroom ground-floor apartment at Via della Pergola 7 with Filomena Romanelli and Laura Mazzetti, two Italian lawyers in training in their late 20s, as well as 21-year-old British exchange student Meredith Karcher. Meredith was born on December 28, 1985, in South London. Meredith, nicknamed Mez, loved the Italian language and culture. She studied European politics at the University of Leeds and hoped to become a journalist or to work for the European Union. In the fall of 2007, she began studying at the University of Perugia. She was described as caring, intelligent, witty, and popular. Her parents, Arlene and John, said she was, quote, excited at the prospect of spending the year studying there to improve her language skills, make new friends, and immerse herself in the culture, end quote. The women lived above a group of Italian men who they were friendly with. One of the men, Giacomo Silenzi, began a romantic relationship with Meredith. In Italy, Amanda worked at a bar called Le Chic, which was owned by 38-year-old Patrick Lumumba. On October 25th, Meredith and Amanda went to a concert where Meredith met Rafael Solicito, a 23-year-old software engineering student. She then began to spend most of her time at his nearby flat. There are various accounts of the relationship between Amanda and Meredith. Some say they got along fine, but others claim Meredith was annoyed by Amanda's sloppiness and the number of men she invited to the apartment.
0: On November 1st, Philomena and Laura were out of town. Meredith had dinner with a group of friends and was last seen leaving their home at 8.45 p.m. Amanda returned to the apartment the following morning after having spent the night with Raphael. She noticed that the front door was open and there were drops of blood in the bathroom she shared with Meredith, as well as feces in the toilet. Meredith's bedroom door was locked and Amanda assumed she was sleeping. She went on to take a shower and went to Raphael's flat before returning to her apartment with him. They noticed a broken window in Philomena's bedroom, and after unsuccessfully trying to force open Meredith's bedroom door, he called the police. Raphael was recorded telling them that there had been a break-in with nothing taken, and the emergency was that Meredith's door was locked. She was not answering calls to her phone, and there were bloodstains. Philomena returned to the flat after being told of the situation by Amanda. As she went through the apartment looking for Meredith's phone, she unknowingly tampered with the crime scene. The door was then kicked in by a friend of Philomena and Meredith's body was discovered on the floor covered by a duvet. She had been stabbed 47 times and her throat had been cut. She ultimately died of blood loss. The first detectives on the scene were Monica Napoleone and her superior Marco Cicciorelli. Amanda told him that she had spent the night with Raphael, though he told police he could not remember if she was with him. She also accused her boss, Patrick LaBamba, of Meredith's murder. Chicharria discounted the signs of a break-in, deeming them clearly faked by the killer. Over the following days, Amanda was repeatedly interviewed as a witness. Her interview sometimes went into the early morning hours. She told the police that on November 1st, she received a text from Lombamba advising her that evening waitressing ship had been canceled and she had stayed over at Raphael's apartment only going back to the apartment she shared with Meredith on the morning her body was discovered. On the night of November 5th Amanda voluntarily went to the police station. She was not provided with legal counsel as Italian law only mandates the appointment of a lawyer for someone suspected of a crime or an interpreter. She said she had requested a lawyer, but was told it would make things worse for her. She later testified that she was subjected to pressure tactics and hit by police to make her incriminate herself. Finally, Solicito admitted that Knox could have left his apartment at night while he was sleeping. When detectives presented this to her as an accusation, she broke down. After a 14-hour interrogation, Amanda signed a confession saying that she had returned to her apartment on the night of November 1st, 2007, and had been standing in the next room when Lumbaba stabbed Kirshner to death. The next day, Amanda, Raphael, and Patrick Lombamba were arrested and charged with murder, though Lombamba was released two weeks later when customers from the bar confirmed his alibi. Soon after falsely accusing her employer, Amanda retracted her statement. Chichiera, who thought the arrests were premature, dropped out of the investigation soon after leaving Napoleone in charge of a major investigation for the first time in her career.
1: Amanda was quickly framed as a quote-unquote promiscuous party girl. The media exposed Amanda's MySpace webpage to support their claims. They used her nickname, quote-unquote Foxy Noxy, which was given to her as a child because of her defensive play style in soccer to push the idea that Amanda was a quote-unquote seductress. She posted a provocative photo of herself as well as a disturbing story about a rapist onto her MySpace page. Information was leaked to the press, including from a shop owner who reported that the day after Meredith's body had been found, that Amanda and Raphael were shopping for lingerie and loudly talking about sex. Soon after her arrest, a prison quote-unquote doctor tested a sample of Knox's blood and then informed her she was HIV positive, prompting Knox to list every man she'd had sex with. Authorities passed the names of the seven men to reporters from the British tabloid pack who printed it. Soon thereafter, Knox was told the doctor was mistaken and she didn't have HIV or AIDS. Reporters from both Italy and the U.S. bombarded Amanda's parents. Her father, Kurt, even claimed that a letter she had sent them for prison was stolen and turned up in a British tabloid. The evidence initially presented by police seemed overwhelming. There was a spot of Knox's DNA mixed with Kircher's blood on a faucet, a kitchen knife from Solicito's house with Knox's DNA on the handle, and Kircher's DNA on the blade, as well as a surveillance video putting Knox at her house near the time of the murder. There have been claims that the initial evidence was handled using dirty gloves and that investigators entered the crime scene without protective clothing. Law enforcement found it odd that during her questioning, Amanda was doing handstands and cartwheels. One of Meredith's friends said that Amanda and Raphael's behavior at the station was quote unquote inappropriate and that neither of them showed much emotion. Another friend claimed that after someone said they hoped Meredith was not in pain, Amanda responded with, quote, What do you think? She fucking bled to death, end quote. The friend alleged that at that point, no one had told them how Meredith died. On November 19, 2007, the Rome Forensic Police matched bloody fingerprints found in Meredith's bedroom to Rudy Gaudet. Gaudet was born in the Ivory Coast and moved to Italy when he was five. He was a street hustler that was known to bother women at local bars. Gaudet allegedly committed break-ins, including one of a lawyer's office through a second floor window and another, during which he burgled a flat and brandished a pocket knife when confronted. He had allegedly met Meredith in early October at a party in the downstairs apartment. Days before Kircher's murder, Gadet was arrested in Milan after breaking into a nursery school. He was reportedly found by police with an 11-inch knife, which had been taken from the school kitchen. On November twentieth, two 2007, Guede was arrested in Germany and charged with murder before being extradited to Italy. He told the court he had gone to the apartment on a date arranged with Kircher after meeting her the previous evening. Guede said Kircher had let him in the cottage around 9 p.m. Guede said that she and he had kissed and touched but did not have sexual intercourse because they did not have condoms readily available. He claimed that he then developed stomach pains and crossed to the large bathroom on the other side of the apartment. Gaudet said he had heard Meredith scream while he was in the bathroom and that upon emerging, he saw a shadowy figure holding a knife and standing over her as she lay bleeding on the floor. He originally said Amanda was not involved, but later changed his story. Amanda and Raphael were ordered to be held in detention, pending a trial. Gaudet received his own fast track trial procedure In October 2008, Gade was found guilty of the sexual assault and murder of Meredith Kircher and sentenced to 30 years imprisonment. In 2009, Knox and Solicito pleaded not guilty on charges of murder, sexual assault, carrying a knife, which Gade had not been charged with, simulating a burglary and theft of 300 euros, two credit cards, and two mobile phones. There was a separate but concurrent trial of Knox with the same jury as her murder trial in which she was accused of falsely denouncing her employer for the murder. Amanda's police interrogation was deemed improper and ruled inadmissible for the murder trial, but was heard in her nominally separate trial for false denunciation.
0: Prosecutors said it was the result of a four-way sex game in which Amanda, Raphael, and Godet forced Meredith to submit to sex pushing her onto her knees and threatening her, then killing her with a knife. According to the prosecution's reconstruction, Knox had attacked Meredith in her bedroom, repeatedly banged her head against the wall, forcibly held her face, and then tried to strangle her. They have removed Meredith's jeans and held her on her hands and knees while Gaudet had sexually abused her. Amanda had cut her with a knife before inflicting the fatal stab wound, then faked a burglary. They also argued that Amanda's first call on November 2nd to Meredith's English phone was to ascertain if her phones had been found and Raphael had tried to break in the bedroom door because he and Knox locked it behind them. They realized they had left something that might incriminate them. Prosecutors advanced a single piece of forensic evidence linking Raphael to Meredith's bedroom where the murder had taken place. Fragments of his DNA on her bra. They also believed the murder weapon to be a 6.5 inch knife from his personal collection, defense suggested that Gade was a lone killer who had murdered Meredith after breaking in. Amanda's lawyers pointed out that no shoe prints, clothing fibers, hairs, fingerprints, skin cells, or DNA of hers were found on Meredith's body, clothes, handbag, or anywhere else in Meredith's bedroom. Gade's DNA was on the strap of Meredith's bra which had been torn off and his DNA was found on a vaginal swab taken from her body. His bloody palm print was on a pillow that had been placed under Meredith's hips. Gade's DNA mixed with Meredith's was on the left sleeve of her bloody sweatshirt and in bloodstains inside her shoulder bag from which 300 euros and credit cards had been stolen. Knox's defense experts have found that the knife could not have caused Meredith's fatal wounds and that the amount of DNA was too small to be accurately attributable to her and that it could have been contaminated. This claim was rejected by the prosecution, who said that they used world-class technology and had highly experienced officers. They also pointed out how the bra being used as evidence was found seven weeks after the crime was committed, and that it was odd that Raphael's DNA was only found on the clasp and not the fabric. On December 5th, 2009, Amanda was convicted on charges of faking a break-in, defamation, sexual violence, slander, and murder, and was sentenced to 26 years imprisonment. Raphael was sentenced to 25 years. In Italy, opinion was not generally favorable towards Knox, and an Italian jurist remarked, This is the simplest and fairest criminal trial one could possibly think of in terms of evidence. In the United States, the verdict was widely viewed as a miscarriage of justice. American lawyers expressed concern about pretrial publicity and statements excluded from the murder case being allowed for a contemptuous civil suit heard by the same jury. Although acknowledging that Knox might have been a person of interest for American police in similar circumstances, journalist Nina Burleigh, who had spent months in Italy during the trial while researching a book on the case, said the conviction had not been based on solid proof and that there had been a resentment towards the Knox family that amounted to, quote unquote, anti-Americanism.
1: In November 2010, an appeal trial began for Amanda and Raphael. A court-ordered review of the contested DNA evidence by independent experts noted numerous basic errors in the gathering and analysis of the evidence and concluded that no evidential trace of Kircher's DNA had been found on the alleged murder weapon, which, again, police had found in Raphael's kitchen. The review found the forensic police examination showed evidence of multiple males' DNAs, fragments on the bra clasp, which had been lost on the floor for 47 days. The court-appointed expert testified the context strongly suggested contamination. On October 3, 2011, Amanda and Raphael were found not guilty of the murder and their convictions were overturned. The Italian appeals court upheld Knox's conviction of slander. She was sentenced to three years in jail and given credit for time already served. Then in 2013, a retrial was ordered when a new piece of evidence was discovered on a knife. And in January 2014, Amanda and Raphael were found guilty again. On March 27, 2015, the ultimate appeal by Amanda and Raphael was heard by the Supreme Court of Cassation. It ruled that the case was without foundation, thereby definitively acquitting them of the murder. In September 2015, the court published the report on the acquittal citing quote-unquote glaring errors, quote-unquote investigative amnesia, and quote-unquote guilty omissions where a five-judge panel said that the prosecutors who won the original murder conviction failed to prove a whole truth to back up the scenario that Amanda and Rafael killed Meredith. They also stated that there were quote-unquote sensational failures in the investigation and that the lower court had been guilty of quote-unquote culpable omissions in ignoring expert testimony that demonstrated contamination of evidence. In early 2019, the European Court of Human Rights ordered Italy to pay compensation to Amanda for violating her rights in the hours after her arrest in Perugia. Italy was ordered to pay Amanda Knox 18,400 euros, which is about 20,800 US dollars, for not providing her with either a lawyer or a competent interpreter when she was first held in custody. After returning to the United States, Amanda completed her degree and worked on a book about her case. She was often followed by paparazzi. Her family incurred large debts from the years of supporting her in Italy and were left insolvent. The proceeds from Waiting to be Heard, a memoir, went to pay for legal fees for her Italian lawyers. Knox has been a reviewer and journalist for what is now the West Side Seattle publication and attended events for the Innocence Project and related organizations. She went on to marry author Christopher Robinson and 2021 gave birth to their daughter. The couple co-hosted podcasts and have written several books.
0: Most recently, she was granted a retrial for her slander conviction in which she named Patrick Lumbumba as Meredith's killer. In the ensuing fallout, Patrick lost his bar license and moved his family out of Italy, according to The Guardian. Though she was ordered to pay compensation, Patrick never received any. Her defense attorneys are now arguing that Knox made the allegations under duress having been denied her right to a translator and interpreter. She has said that both she and Patrick were victims of human rights violations. Rudy goodday's 30-year prison sentence was later shortened to 16 years. He was released in November 2021. In a recent documentary, Raphael said being released from prison was bittersweet. He continued with, quote, four years in prison, six months in solitary confinement, and still today I feel that bitterness, even though I moved on with my life, end quote. The degree that Meredith would have received in 2009 was awarded posthumously by the University of Leeds. In 2012, Perugia and the University of Foreigners, in cooperation with the Italian Embassy in London, instituted a scholarship fund in honor of the memory of Meredith Kirscher. Her father, John, stated in an interview that all profits from his book would go to the charitable foundation in Meredith's name.
1: Del, what are your thoughts on not only Meredith's murder, but Amanda and Raphael's numerous trials?
0: So I definitely think that G'day is solely responsible for Meredith's murder. I don't think that Amanda or Raphael or anyone else had anything to do with it. I think that he had a string of prior... Allegations against him, and this was a progression in his level of violence. I think that from everything that I have heard about this case, everything that we talked about, it's very clear that there was an initial bias against Amanda, and everything about this investigation, the interrogation, and her trial was combined to make sure that the outcome was that she was convicted. I think that the media played a huge part in this illustration of her as this American wild child who came to Italy to be spicy and act in a way that she wouldn't have in America, at least That's the impression I get from how they frequently talked about her and described her actions, which as an adult, she has every right to partake in. I think it's very disgusting that a quote unquote doctor would lie to her to have her reveal her sexual history to them and then release that to the police and ultimately to the press. It's one of those elements of the case that really illustrates how all these different areas was working against her. It's definitely great to hear that she has been able to turn really tragic situation that happened to her into something positive. And hopefully now she has... Learned and grown and just become the best wife, mother, and person that she can. And I do wish her all the best. And I bet that she probably has very mixed feelings about her experience and everything that she went through. I don't have any sympathy from for uh, Raphael. The fact that he went to throw her under the bus so fast is one of those things of like, just Why? Like, what was the point? It wasn't going to spare you. You were going to go to jail just the same. The fact that you decided to throw her under the bus and try to make her seem more culpable in this to save your own skin is just gross. It really is. I think that it's interesting that Gade got out of prison so fast. I think that when you have a situation where the prosecution muddies the water so much in terms of how they present the case and trying to add co-conspirators that have nothing to do with it, you get in general, a miscarriage of justice. And I don't think that Meredith got the full level of justice that she could have gotten if the prosecution, the police, and the media hadn't tried to tie Amanda Knox to this case in the way that they did. What are your thoughts on it?
1: I think you're pretty spot on, Dell. Everything to me also points to Rudy Guede. There's no real motive for Amanda and Raphael. There's no hard evidence that points you know in their direction either i think amanda it was definitely like a railroading kind of case and tunnel vision and i don't know how these the law enforcement and the prosecutors could come up with this story of a sex game turned wrong or whatever it was that they wanted to say because truly nothing points to that i think amanda was kind of largely convicted on how she was behaving afterward. And yes, I do think some of it is odd, but we've said this many times that people behave differently when they're grieving, when they're experiencing trauma. She was also only like 20, 21 at the time. So I feel like maybe there was like a tad bit of naivete in there too. Maybe it didn't fully hit her. I know she said in There's a famous, like, news clip video of her and Raphael kissing, like, basically when Meredith's body is being found and the police are there. And she says, like, that was my boyfriend comforting me. And, I mean, that makes sense to me. It's not like some hot and heavy makeout session that I think people want to point it out to be. I think it was definitely a coerced confession for her and Raphael's defense. I think he did go through very long interrogation sessions too. So maybe that's why he had kind of thrown Amanda under the bus as for why Amanda may be accused Patrick Lumumba that I, I don't really understand and I wouldn't defend that maybe just this duress of her, investigation and we have to remember she's in an unfamiliar place with a language that she has not mastered that to me would be very intimidating and scary on top of everything else they were already doing to her I'm curious to see where this retrial with Patrick Lumumba is going and it's kind of it's upsetting to see that he didn't you know like the damage was kind of done for him even after he found he was you know his alibi was confirmed and it's kind of odd to me that he never got compensation because I do think he is one of the victims in this case. There's many victims, but the main victim, Meredith, personally in this case, I feel like she's incredibly forgotten about and that must be so upsetting. I'm happy that her family has turned her name into something that could be remembered with charity, but I can't imagine what they had to deal with at that time, especially knowing like the British tabloids and then, you know, what they have to deal with going forward too. And something that I thought was really interesting was Amanda had said, I think this is was when G'day was getting released. She had said, he's not remembered for this case and he's the one that committed this crime. And I would say of the four or five people involved, people don't remember the name Rudy Gaudet like they do Amanda Knox or Rafael Solicito or Meredith Kircher. And I, I think that's kind of interesting. Next, we wanted to get into some Americans that were tried and imprisoned overseas um, that were considered controversial, similar to Amanda's. The first is Michael Fay. In 1993, 18-year-old American Michael Fay was arrested for vandalizing 67 cars while living in Singapore with his mom and stepdad. The damage included spray painting, throwing eggs at the cars, and smashing at least one windshield. He pleaded guilty to two counts of vandalism and one count of keeping 16 stolen items. Fay later claimed that he had been intimidated and threatened during a police interrogation and maintained that he had been advised such a plea would preclude caning and that his confession was false, that he never vandalized any cars, and that the only crime he committed was stealing signs. Faye was sentenced on March 3rd, 1994 to four months in jail, a fine of what is now $2,230 US and six strokes of the cane. Caning is inflicted by a specially trained prison staff using a long and thick rattan cane on the prisoner's bare buttocks in an enclosed area in the prison. This caused Faye's sentence to receive international attention. A Los Angeles Times poll found that Americans were evenly divided, with 49% approving and 48% disapproving as to the appropriateness of the punishment, but would have only been 36% in favor had the sentence been handed down inside the U.S. The Clinton administration ultimately expressed its objection to Singapore's decision to cane Faye. The official position of the United States government was that although it recognized Singapore's right to punish Faye within the due process of law, the punishment of caning was quote-unquote excessive for a teenager who committed a non-violent crime. Ultimately, his caning was reduced to four strokes and took place on May 5th, 1994. Faye told Reuters that he did not know the time had come for punishment when he was taken from his cell. He said he was bent over a trestle so his buttocks stuck out with his hands and feet buckled to the structure. He was naked except for a protective rubber pad fixed to his back. The flogger, a doctor, and prison officials were also present. The caning, which Faye estimated took one minute, left a quote-unquote few streaks of blood running down his buttocks, and seven weeks later, three dark brown scar patches on his right buttock and four lines, each about half an inch wide on his left buttock. After his release from prison in June 1994, Faye returned to the United States to live with his biological father.
0: The next case is that Brittany Griner. Griner is an American professional basketball player for the Phoenix Mercury of the Women's National Basketball Association, the WNBA. She is also a two-time Olympic gold medalist with the U.S. Women's National Basketball Team. On February 17, 2022, Griner was arrested on drug smuggling charges in Russia. She was detained at the airport after the Federal Customs Service found that she was carrying vaporizer cartridges containing less than a gram of hash oil. In Arizona, she had been prescribed medicinal cannabis, which is illegal in Russia. Some U.S. officials expressed concern that Russia may be using Greiner as leverage in response to the Western sanctions imposed against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. In May 2022, the U.S. State Department stated that they had determined Greiner was being quote-unquote wrongfully detained. On the second day of her trial, on July 7th, she pleaded guilty but said she had no intent to break the law. On August 4th, the court found Griner guilty and sentenced her to nine years in prison and fined her 1 million rubles, which is approximately 16301 U.S. dollars. Even though the standard sentence for possession of no more than two grams of hash oil is 15 days. She was then transferred to a penal colony in Yavis. Greiner's family enlisted the help of Bring Our Families Home to appeal for her release. After months of negotiation, on December 8, 2002, she was released by Russia in a one-for-one prisoner swap for arms dealer Victor Bout, who was serving 25 years in a U.S. prison on charges of terroristic conspiracy. The possible release of former U.S. Marine Paul Willen imprisoned in, in Russia on espionage charges in 2018 was also a part of negotiations. Russia refused to release Willen along with Greiner as part of the prison exchange. U.S. President Joe Biden said that Russia was treating Willens case differently, quote, for totally illegitimate reasons, end quote. Due to Greiner and Bout's charges, they were deemed as lesser criminals in the Russian justice system. Mark Fogel, Another American detained in Russia for possessing a small amount of marijuana was also not included in the prisoner swap. Because of this and other reasons, the prisoner exchange faced criticism, though Whelan's family was supportive of the exchange. Cynthia Lowenstreyer, Director of Research, Hostage Advocacy and Legislative Affairs for the Foley Foundation, said there is a greater interest among countries like Venezuela, Russia and China to use U.S. citizens as quote-unquote geopolitical pawns whose imprisonments can be leveraged to demand change in U.S. policy or to force concessions like a prisoner exchange. The problem, she said, is quote-unquote worsening as an increasing number of countries are testing the waters for potential gain. So do you think these sentences were appropriate? So for Michael Fay, and I feel like this anytime there is a sentence that to our U.S. criminal justice system might seem strange, but it's something that's standard in other countries, I think it's fine. I think it's not something that I as an American can really judge how another country decides to carry out different punishments. I think as long as it's not something that's violating like human rights and stuff like that, I don't see a problem with it necessarily. When it comes to Britney, I definitely think that she was used as a geopolitical pawn. I think that it was very obvious from the fact that her sentence was atypical to the fact that they got someone released that was notorious for being someone that worked with Putin and his nickname is literally the merchant of death. Like, I think that just says it all when it comes to what Russia's goal was when they decided to hand out a very lengthy prison term to Brittany Griner. I think it's ridiculous, but like Cynthia said, from the Foley Foundation, it's definitely something that we're likely going to see an increased amount of. How about you?
1: I don't know how I feel about the Michael Fay case because... I don't support corporal punishment, but I mean, I do understand what you're saying, Del, about respecting how other countries go about their punishment and prison. I didn't know going into this that he said that he was like intimidated by the police there. I didn't know all of the details. I only knew like people joking about this boy getting like caned as a punishment. Like I've seen that on like pop culture shows. If anyone ever watched, I love the nineties that you definitely talked about that. That was probably the first time I ever heard about it as like a teenager. I don't know. I think it's a little bit excessive, especially like the government statement said he was a teenager. He didn't commit a violent crime. Did he deserve to be punished somehow? Yes, because he's being a stupid teenager destroying property. You can't do that. You can't get away with that. It seems like it didn't, go on to affect him like too much into his adulthood and I don't really know what he's doing now but I don't know I mean I think worse things could have happened I think easier things could have happened to him but I don't know I feel like maybe in this situation it was probably all right to let Singapore do what they needed to do and I hate to be like oh like I said it could have been worse but I mean four strokes which I'm sure is incredibly painful and embarrassing it could have been worse I do agree about Brittany Griner being a pawn. I think it was incredibly obvious. Should she have brought the marijuana, whatever, into the country? No, but I understand maybe she thought that it was medical marijuana. Maybe she thought it was all right to do. And her saying, like, yes, I committed a crime, but I didn't have intention of breaking the law. I feel like it's a great way to put it. I do wonder if... I mean, she's obviously a public figure, but I do wonder if she was at greater risk being like imprisoned because she is a black woman. She is an openly gay woman. Russia is notoriously a very homophobic country. So I wonder if that had anything to do with the government kind of speeding up the process of her getting out. I mean, ideally, we could get everyone that we mentioned out. I do think it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about an arms dealer being like freed, but then they don't view him on the same level as someone allegedly committing espionage. I feel like they're not like that far apart, but I don't know. I don't know all the political dealings of things like that. I never really thought about this being like a like a geopolitical thing that countries are doing now. This was like the first time I feel like I had, maybe not the first time, but like I guess something that I could see as an adult that was so obvious that it was because of politics that this was occurring. And I'm kind of curious and I guess a little scared to see what goes on, what's going to happen in the future. Because as I was researching this, there was a man in China, an American citizen that I think he was originally from China and he's being detained there imprisoned because of like bogus espionage charges either. And he was just like on vacation with his family. I can't think of that man's name right now, but. I'm sure you could find it if you're interested. Like we talked about, DNA contamination played a large part in the trial for Meredith's murder as well as the investigation. Locard's exchange principle teaches us that when we enter a crime scene, we introduce trace evidence, and when we leave a crime scene, we remove trace evidence. Because very small DNA samples can be used as evidence, investigators and laboratory personnel must be extremely careful about contamination issues when identifying, collecting, and preserving samples. If contamination occurs, the evidence might never make it to the courtroom. DNA contamination happens when foreign DNA mixes with your intended sample of DNA. DNA contamination can happen at any time including before the sample is collected, while it's being collected, during transport or at the lab. It can happen in a variety of ways from someone sneezing or coughing over the evidence to samples getting mixed during sequencing. The National Criminal Justice Reference Service, the NCJRS, outlines the following tips for preventing evidence contamination wear gloves and change them often, use disposable instruments or clean them thoroughly before and after handling each sample, avoid touching the area where DNA may exist, avoid talking, sneezing, and coughing over evidence, avoid touching your face, nose, and mouth when collecting and packaging evidence, air dry evidence thoroughly before packaging, and put evidence into new paper bags or envelopes, not into plastic bags, and don't use staples. Crime scene officers should also use different tools like tweezers, fingerprint brushes, and powder and swabs at every scene. When transporting and storing evidence that may contain DNA, it is important to keep the evidence dry and at room temperature. Once the evidence has been secured in paper bags or envelopes, it should be sealed, labeled, and transported in a way that ensures proper identification of where it was found and proper chain of custody. As advances in technology are solving some of these problems, they have actually made the problem of DNA transfer worse. Each new generation of forensic tools is more sensitive. Labs today can identify people with DNA from just a handful of cells. A handful of cells can easily migrate. So sensitive are the analysis methods that transfers of DNA can be found on clothes even after they have been through a washing cycle.
0: An infamous example of DNA contamination occurred in the quote unquote Phantom of Hellbron case. When a string of 40 crimes were committed across Europe dating back to 1993, investigators found the DNA of one woman at the scene of many of the crimes. However, after investigators spent years trying to ascertain the identity of this quote-unquote phantom woman, in 2009 they discovered that the DNA led back to a woman who worked in the factory where she helped produce cotton swabs used for collecting DNA. This investigation wasted the time and resources of everyone involved because of reliance on uncontaminated sample. To highlight how easily contamination in DNA evidence can occur, Dr. Greg Hampkins' team carried out a demonstration from who founded the Idaho Innocence Project at Boise State University. They picked up used drinking cans wearing clean gloves and then placed a new knife into an evidence bag without changing gloves. The knife was subsequently found to have tiny fragments of traceable DNA which had been transferred from the can. For this reason, says David Balding from University College London's Genetics Institute, the word quote-unquote contamination should be used with care because DNA is everywhere in our environment. Quote, every crime sample that was ever collected was contaminated. Even in the most pristine conditions in a laboratory, you cannot have a DNA-free environment. End quote. He continues, quote, the point is you have to allow for that to do a correct evaluation of the evidence. All of that kind of contamination just isn't a problem as it's not going to match. The only contamination that matters is something that would have got the suspect's DNA, end quote. Professor Balding helped to analyze the brow claps on which Raphael's DNA was detected in the Meredith investigation.
1: So do you have any thoughts on the sensitivity of the DNA analysis
0: or any thoughts on DNA contamination? I mean, this is not surprising. I think that anytime you have a piece of evidence that people place almost 100 percent faith in. Any tiny deviation that calls into question that faith is something that we definitely need to make sure that we are isolating for. I definitely like that Professor Balding called out that contamination is everywhere and what you really need to look for is that things match and that things really make sense at a crime scene. We've seen many cases where forensic evidence is tampered with, destroyed, contaminated, and have all manners of just improper procedure done to it. So I do hope that all police departments and forensic labs are looking at the NCJRS's tips and actually following them because Of the importance that we place on DNA, it's really important that we get it right. And it's really important that any type of contamination, any type of anything that can call that evidence into question, we need to make sure that we're eliminating that possibility. I do wonder how the sensitivity of DNA and the collection efforts are going to change as technology gets better and as people become more aware and perpetrators try to take additional measures to try to hide their DNA. It'd be interesting to see what forensic science does to address that issue. What are your thoughts on DNA and contamination?
1: I was kind of surprised to see that the analysis now is so sensitive that it's kind of making things worse. But, like, the more I think of it, it's not as surprising because we so often hear, like, the littlest bit of DNA that was saved from, you know, like a cold case was used to help identify somebody or whatever. It seems so obvious that people should be changing your gloves and not touching your mouth or storing evidence properly. But anything that humans are involved with, there's always human error. And I don't know, sometimes with things like sneezing and coughing, it comes on so fast, you really can't control that. But I would hope That most places, do what they can to avoid this, like, cross-contamination. But like you said, Del, like, time and time again, we've seen, I guess, more so in older cases, but it still does happen. We hear about how just, like, everybody was let into the crime scene, and everyone walked through, and police were picking things up with their bare hands. So that's I don't know. I feel like that's always kind of shocking because you just think like, doesn't anybody have any common sense? Like you don't need to be a professional in this field to realize like to do a majority of this stuff. I'm curious too, how things are going to go in the future. I wonder if anything's going to be done to help prevent contamination. If there is a way to within the analysis, pull out information within the DNA that
0: shows contamination. I don't know. We'll see. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the murder of Meredith Kirshner. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.